Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have back with us the one, the only, Carl Fabritius. Welcome back, Carl. There better only be one of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we can handle. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you, Jason. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is, you know, when all of us were ordained, we made a pledge to adorn the office with a holy life. We read throughout the Old Testament things like how how God set forth the vestments of the priests for beauty and for glory. So what I want to talk to you about today is what does what the Old Testament, what does the Bible teach us about the conduct of holiness, the holiness of life within the office of the ministry, whether it's Old Testament or New? And then likewise, the reverent conduct within the duties of those placed into the office. What does the Old Testament and then the New have to teach us about that? Well, first of all, I think we have to stress that the Old Testament is teaching us about that. I think too often what happens is people want to act like, oh, we're New Testament people and all that language doesn't matter. But you have to look at how much language there is about rooted in the fact that God is the holy God, sort mm -hmm. of begin that whole worship sequence with Exodus 19 and 20. And 19, you're setting apart everybody. He's telling them not to come near the mountain. You see the fire of the Lord there. He warns them about the fire breaking out. He's a holy God. There needs to be a way of approaching him, but you can't do it. So the people are terrified and, in fact, ask that not to happen. Now, then you start piling up these references to the Sabbath and the rules regarding the worshiping community and, of course, the priesthood. Now, that so much is in there should tell us that there must be something there still for today. Not that we necessarily have the exact same vestments, you know, yeah. sort of uh, doing the Indiana Jones thing or something, <laughs> but rather that you, uh, that you actually take this holiness of God quite seriously. I, you know, I remember as a boy, I know I'm old now, so, but Western Kansas, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, some really high church place. We're talking about just a good solid pastor who, you know, wore his Geneva gown, but you, you just knew that sense of holiness was there as a kid. Yeah. There was the way he conducted the liturgy, um, you know, just told you that there's a holy God involved in all this. And there needs to be that thing that is there, but you have to take the Old Testament seriously as part of my contention. Yeah. So I want today to just talk a little bit about some of these episodes that I think have become neglected. Well, I don't think our pastors always know these stories, even though they should. Mm -hmm. But that Leviticus 8 through 10 section, and particularly when you get to 10, um, or let's do the end of nine. So at the end of nine, before we get, 
Yes. Before we get there, just to jump on to what you've said uh, about that the Old Testament is already teaching these things to us, and that uh, we're not repristinating the Old Testament, and even the Old Testament is is not repristinating, is it? It's it's doing things after the pattern, and that's a, a word that is stated time and time again with regard to the tabernacle and then temple cult after the pattern that 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 God shows Moses on the mountain so it's not a it's not a just repristination but they're doing it according to the pattern which has been shown to them and and it in a sense it sounds like what you're saying is the old testament has given us a pattern a pattern to follow and we're not repristinating yes, it we are following the pattern or perhaps the sound pattern of words and doctrine that we've received. Right. And you think about Hebrews. I mean, talk about a book where you hear about the pattern. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, it's, it doesn't ignore the fact that that Old Testament language is there. Rather, it gives us how that pattern is so important still and uh, makes it important for the church today. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into... You were going to go into Leviticus 8? Well, 8, 9, 10. They've got this consecration of Aaron and the priesthood going on. Um, you have the initial sacrifices then. And when you get to the end of chapter 9, um, you have Aaron putting the sacrifice there. And in verse 21, there's that phrase that keeps coming up over and again over again, as Moses had commanded, or it's also worded as the Lord had commanded, depending on where the reference falls in the text. Mm -hmm. But Moses' command, of course, is simply what the Lord had told him to instruct Aaron to do. So they come out, they bless the people, and then all this happens after fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. Or I mean, right before, sorry, I said yeah. after. <laughs> Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. This is a pattern now, this phrase of doing this. You're going to see this pattern occur several times. Of course, the most famous one is probably what? Here's your quiz session of the fire consuming a sacrifice. Uh, geez. How about... Elijah, we talked about last yeah, yeah. time. Yeah, Elijah. The, the fire comes down on the altar and consumes it. And, you know, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The holy God is the one whose fire consumes the sacrifice. Something has to be consumed, though. This was all for the atonement of the priest. And so the sacrifice is consumed by the fire that breaks forth from the Lord. The fire that was at the holy mountain but the fire that did not consume the people there would have, if you had drawn near and touched the mountain, of course, without mm -hmm. being given the permission. So that the fire is there and is a very real thing. And now it's consumed this sacrifice, atoning for the priesthood for Aaron. But then right away, you see how distorted people get about things. This happened before all the people. The whole congregation gets to see this happen. Mm -hmm. But right away, the two sons of Aaron, you know, he has four sons, and Nadab and Abihu, two of them, decide to take up their censers and put fire in there that is not commanded by the Lord. 
the interesting, it's translated like profane or has several different translations to it. Now, the interesting thing is you look at that word, it tends to be used for alien things, something outside a foreigner, many times for foreign gods. Sort of, they have totally turned their back, even though they've just seen what the Lord has done. They go their own way, they pick up their censers and want to go do what they're not commanded to do. You know, they want to be, you know, doing something. They're pragmatic about their task. <laughs> and so so they think they need to do something, even though it's not commanded them to do it. And right away, you see how the warning that had happened back before this, that in fact, if they did things outside of what God had said, they would die. Not just at the, the earlier one going to the mountain, you hear it again and again. If you get outside or do an alien thing, a thing other, then you get consumed by the Lord's anger. You die. And so even though they are the sons of Aaron, and as such, they were appointed to serve, yet they had not been given this command. They go outside and do this alien thing. And so therefore, rejecting the Lord's words, they die. I mean, mm -hmm. they're the sons of Aaron. Now, that's shocking enough, but then the, God is so holy that now the instruction comes that Aaron and the other two sons must not in any way mourn. <laughs> they can't even mourn his, his sons because they have to stay inside where they're being sanctified for their purpose, and they have to remain holy to the Lord. They can't go bury their son. He can't go bury his sons, their brothers. They just have to have relatives pick up the pick them up by their tunics and carry them away now i'm struck by the fact that in the new testament it seems this kind of episode happens very quickly i mean you get to the book of acts you're kind of marching along you know the word of the lord is growing you've got all the baptisms you've got people gathering everything seems great they're bringing offerings and then all of a sudden you have the instruct that insertion of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. They don't treat the holy things in a holy way. They lie to the Spirit of God, and they're carried out dead. The Spirit of God kills them. Because before the Lord's altar, and in the presence of the Lord, he always knows what's going on. When you get to the book of Ezekiel, for example, you've got all this language of how the people in secret are worshiping all their own idols. They think that God can't see them. But he shows to Ezekiel all the wickedness that's going on, all the harlotry of the people of Israel. God, the holy God, will not tolerate this. And so they're going to be stoned to death. They're going to be, you know, all kinds of evil comes upon them because of their own rejection. They become the aliens. They become mm. the outsiders. They become the profane. And they willingly do it, but thinking all the time they're hiding it. <laughs> so this, this holy God who loves these people, I mean, he proclaims again and again, repent, return to me. The love is there. The Father has compassion. The same God is then they turn their back on him. And th this happens in terms, I think, what's happened in terms of how Unfortunately, my generation, I blame my generation all the time, you know, because I 
think of that song from the who about my generation but uh, it's like we have turned our back on what we were taught about god being the holy god because now he's mr nice guy yeah. you know and we, we seem to think that he can't be the other part you know the one who is indeed the holy and righteous god we need the holy and righteous one to come in the flesh and to be consumed at the cross so that we don't get consumed. But if we want to step out there like Nadab and Abihu and do our own thing, then we enter into dangerous territory. And this applies, I think, to the liturgy. The liturgy is the time-tested way of preserving God's words, or you might say it, as the Lord had commanded it. So, no, we don't have something that says specifically, use this Bible passage in the liturgy. Right. But when the Church of God, through time-tested ways, has handed down these things, there is the good in them. You know, the Old Testament focus on the Passover. Um, even here in Leviticus, they just talked a little bit about the Passover before this. Uh, you'll see the uh, second Passover celebrated in Numbers and the emphasis on that right before you get the series of revolts against the priesthood God has appointed and the way people don't want to listen to the way the Lord had commanded these things. Now the liturgy puts at the heart of it the um, in the divine service the mass itself is the Lord's Supper. You're focusing on the atoning work of Christ for us mm -hmm. both in the preaching and then in the sacrament that is given. So that there the Holy God comes to us but we need to remind ourselves we're approaching the Holy God. So the flow of the liturgy, you start with the confession of sins and you have the crying out before God in the Kyrie, Lord have mercy upon us. Who are we? We're just these sinners and yet you have had mercy. You've sent your son. So you sing the beautiful uh, glory and excelsis and you talk about his coming as the angels sang of his coming and about the fact that he is there for our mercy. But all of this is also the emphasis on the holy. So you have, not that it's required, but you have certain nods of the head and certain genuflections and all these, because we're acknowledging, yeah, this really is a holy God. Yeah, This is one who is set apart from us, and yet in his mercy, his son came in the flesh. It's amazing. He is not your good buddy. He is instead the one who loves you. That's far better than having a good buddy. You know, parents are not your good buddy. I know that's what you want to be for your kids. <laughs> but they, they are not your good buddy. They have to be the ones who love their children dearly, but make sure that they're, you know, guiding them and disciplining their children. And as it says in the New Testament, fathers should not exasperate their children, which really is a reference to the fact they need to catechize them to teach them the Lord's word above all so that they have the best thing in their lives. And all of that is because we take this holiness of God very seriously. Now, Nadab and Abihu should have known it. I mean, they had plenty of instruction already, yeah. and yet they just go their own way. Aaron, though, when he's told, you can't mourn, and is reminded, and here's a great thing, Moses doesn't quote it exactly, but he takes this up from Exodus 19, it says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, 
I must be glorified. The church still needs to do that. <laughs> we can't, you know, turn our backs and say, you know, turn God into this just fluffy, you know, little puff the magic dragon or something. I don't know. In which we just have these cute little things and we hand out toys to children. And the church is the place that is different from the world. There's plenty of, you know, poofy, sweet, just disgusting stuff out there in the world. You can get all your stuffed animals. You can get the whole thing out in the world. You come into church, and that's a different place. It's not the place of play. You know, we are not like at the mountain where the people built the idols and then they rose up to play. No, this is a quite different different place when we Mm -hmm. come into church. So we have this quotation of Moses about it, and we're reminded how, yes, still that is supposed to be there. And throughout this whole discussion of the priesthood and what goes on, there's always that theme of to come near God is to come near the Holy One. And even in, well, back to Hebrews, where we have not come to a the burning mountain, you know, the thunder, we've come to a different mountain yeah. where the, the sacrifice has been made. It's still the fact that God is there and is the Holy One, but we have this opened up to us in the congregation that they hadn't yet seen, so that we need to be reminded of that every time we step into the sanctuary. When you conduct the liturgy, what you're doing up there should say, this is a holy thing, whether you're speaking it, chanting it, whatever. Now, I prefer chanting because... I still think that's more angelic, and you don't do that on the streets, you know. It's <laughs> Church takes it to a different language level. But even if you were just speaking it, you should do it in a way that is very much teaching people that this is a holy God, because he doesn't change in that sense. Um, I've rambled on for a while. Do you have a question? Or <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm... Along with all of this, you know, you mentioned Hebrews. It seems like this is even the pattern after which Saint Paul directs his comments to first to the the Corinthian church in First Corinthians. You know, where, where he begins the discussion about or against idolatry, how they were all uh, under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. In the cloud and the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food and same spiritual drink, and they followed the same spiritual rock, uh, which was Christ. But nevertheless, for most of them, God was not pleased because they were overthrown in the wilderness. Um, and then he says, these things took place as an example for us, and they were written down for our instruction. Again, there's a pattern uh, after which the people of God tend to follow. Either they're following it correctly or the pattern they're following is incorrect. Um, so so what is the incorrect pattern? You know, maybe we could spend some time describing the that incorrect pattern as it's put forward for us in the Old Testament and then start building up what that new pattern looks like. Well, the incorrect pattern, to get back to that profane thing, um, the term that's used there, it is they continually redirect their attention away from what the Lord has said mm-hmm. to what their neighbors, the patterns of their neighbors. 
the patterns of those who live around them. I mean, they're warned, you know, that this is to not to be a case. And yet what happens? By the time you get to like numbers uh, 13 and 14, you've got the complaint that uh, they had been led out of a land of milk and honey with false promises of a land of milk and honey. Mm. You know, they, they look at Egypt as being a good place. Well, even already in Exodus, that's the case. When you have the giving of the manna, they're still they're complaining about food there. So they look to patterns of their neighbors and say, oh, but this is, it seems to be a better pattern. Here we are, and it doesn't seem to, we're getting exactly what we want, you know, that immediate pleasure buzz. Um, no, you're not. You're getting the promise of what waits. So when they deny the, themselves entrance into the promised land, they have to wait 38 and a half years. Then they blame it on God. <laughs> it's really their fault, but then they look to the pattern of their neighbors again. So the two different patterns are there throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you see it especially by the time of the prophets, how you know that famous account of Ahola and Aholabah, I like how God dresses them up you know, in the finest. And what do they do? They whore after their neighbors. Mm-hmm. They, they take all the false gods. So there is always that. What happens in today's world now as you sort of shift in to modern years, you could say, we've sort of done that in church. What have we done? We keep making excuses to say, well, the things around us, we need to be more in tune with our society. Probably the answer of the Old Testament is we need to be less in tune with our society in terms of what we do in worship. Now, you have to know what's going on around you. I'm not saying let's all be monastic and flee to the woods and, you know, be. No, you always realistically look at those things, but you offer something different when they come to church mm-hmm. because you're leaving behind the pattern of the world. Yeah. Now, if you go to your rock and roll band and you have your smoke up there on the stage and you've got, you know, the guy dressed in polos and shorts and parading all over the place, this is not a holy God you're talking about. This is just trying to fit in with society. And society may be happier with you. I mean, they were they were perfectly happy to sacrifice children on the altars, uh, the Israelites were. Mm-hmm. And they did it. Even Solomon was involved in that. And Solomon, speaking of fire that came forth, you know, when he dedicated the temple, the sacrifices, God brought down the fire and the sacrifices there too. So you've got all these connections that maybe we should actually look at the things that we've been doing since the 60s. A lot of frightening things. Who would have thought the flying nun would be prophetic? <laughs> but <laughs> the, some of those TV shows and everything else, I know that was a weird reference. That, but uh, those things that went on, it just it, we went down the track of, you know, why'd we listen to, like, Elvis Presley telling us how to be a priest? I mean, that just did not make sense. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, the relational, be this, be that. And so we've drifted. The Missouri Senate has our own problems with that as well. Wisconsin, even though we know Wisconsin is holier than Missouri, <laughs> is still is still having the same issues. Yeah, It's only where, because they make Swiss cheese. Oh, is that it? <laughs> That's why they're holier. <laughs> okay, there we go. 
so, so following the pattern of neighbors versus the pattern of what the Lord has set down in his commands. Now, how do we distinguish, um, how do we distinguish between what is the pattern of the neighbors and then what even the Israelites did in plundering the Egyptians and using those things for the purpose of creating the tabernacle and then the accoutrements for the tabernacle? What What's the distinguishing mark then between plundering the Egyptians, plundering the things of this world in service of what God has commanded us to do, and then copying the pattern of the neighbors. Well, you could go back and say, okay, they plundered their neighbors according to the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Then they gave the offerings according to the word of the Lord. The offerings stopped according to the word of the Lord, (laughs) you know, for the building, I should say, of the tabernacle and all those things. So that each step along the way was according to the word of the Lord. He was the one who directed and oversaw it. So now we too need to base things on the word of the Lord. So he gave us the sacraments, for example, baptism according to his word, the Lord's Supper according to his word. We carry those things out according to his word in a way that we reflect holiness at all times. Is the body and blood of Jesus on the altar holy? Again, what? pastor does in the office of the ministry should confess it's holy. Yeah. You know, whether he does all the genuflecting or not, he at least should be so reverent up there that everybody who's there is thinking this is indeed a holy thing. Mm-hmm. And the very act, I'm not a fan of, you know, drive-by communion where everybody's just walking by. I know if you're communing like several thousand people, you, I can understand, but if you're in a congregation kneeling at the altar, you now if you're old and can't kneel, that's a different thing. We do make exceptions for those things. But mm. it was funny, some of the older people in my congregation, they wanted to kneel to the <laughs> even though it sometimes meant they had to have quite a bit of help getting up because they believe that's the body and blood of Jesus. This is the holy God. He's giving me the gift of his holy son so that I may be made holy by these things. And so this whole activity that goes on within the congregation should show that. Um, But unfortunately, now this is the thing about being retired. You start having to wander about from place to place. (laughs) And I'm just kind of surprised at the lack of sort of a consistent sense of the holy things. I mean, I know these bad things like throwaway shot glasses, are out there, but it surprises me sometimes who uses them. Um, But that's listening to your neighbors again. Why is it that in the last 150 years, we've had this drift towards using, quote, de-alcoholized wine and using um, grape juice? It's because our neighbors did it, and our neighbors argued, well, you know, you've got alcoholics, you've got, we didn't listen to the words, Lord, the words of the Lord, where he clearly says, this is my body, this is my blood, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say anything about harm there. He doesn't, you know, and once you turn away from just trusting what the Lord says and listening to your neighbor's arguments, you can have this departure 
And some people would say, well, it's not that big a deal. Well, I'm sorry, you throw away your your plastic cups, first of all, and you throw them in the trash. Yeah. And there's some of the blood of Christ on there still, too. Don't you think we should say by what we do? Yeah. This is why Luther's argument for the consuming of the element show. They, you say by what you do that you believe the Lord's words and you want the Lord's words to just stand. Mm-hmm. Eat, drink, there you go. But Yeah, so, so what you're saying is it's one thing to say that uh, we're going to take these things from around the neighbor and press the our neighbors and press them into service, like the plundering of the Egyptians, precisely because we've been commanded to do so. So we take water that even our neighbors have. We take bread and wine that even our neighbors have. And according to the word of the Lord, press that into service. Or we take um, unrighteous mammon and have it made holy by giving it to the Lord to be pressed into service for the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom in this world. Um, But we get on shaky ground, well, really shaky, unholy ground, or we, um, we walk as unclean into holy ground when we start trying to take these things from our neighbors outside of the command of the Lord and, and, and do uh, put it under the guise of, well, we're doing this for the church. We're doing this for, for God. Now, even this, to have this whole, you know, good buddy pastor where it's 50 minute sermons, of, mm. which are really just sort of on and ons about himself usually, um, to tell stories about ourselves in the sermons, to do all these things are what people in the world tell you should do. That, you know, you have to make people comfortable. Well, the thing about it, God didn't make Israel comfortable always. <laughs> I mean, did he forgive their sins? Was there atonement in the rites? But it wasn't exactly comfortable having to go before the Lord's I mean, the people all gathered there, they watch what happens, and then Nadab and Abihu are put to death, consumed by the fire, and the people see these things, and they, they again and again bear witness. You go back to the, the rebellion of Korah, again, rebellion against what the Lord had commanded, that Aaron and his sons were to serve, and they were to burn the incense, and of course they say, no, you've taken on yourself too much, we should be able to do it. Well, what happens? You have the breaking forth of the fire on the 250 who were, again, using censors. It is interesting that the two major accounts of censors are most of the account times we see censors in the Old Testament are just Nadab and Abihu and then the Korah and the rebellion there. But the, the breaking forth of the fire on the 250 and consuming them, then the ground opens up under Korah and then... The people right afterwards complain against the Lord and against Moses and say, you've done harm to our our brothers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, no, this isn't to make you comfortable. So what else happened? The plague broke out in their midst. And each time Moses actually cries out for God to be merciful to them. And God actually does in the plague. And he, these things happen according to the word of the Lord. So they weren't exactly comfortable. And even in a New Testament sense, there shouldn't be comfort because when you're called to repentance, 
I mean, maybe you're comfortable with your sin, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, it irritates me. I don't like to, you know. Yeah, I'm not comfortable uh, like- with your sin either, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> so how much, how much uh, of this goes to um, kind of a, just a, a mindset or a framework among, among fallen humanity which presumes upon God's mercy or, or even believes that it, that we ourselves can be more merciful than God. Well, that's an interesting take. Um, that certainly is sort of echoed in that, um, that cry of the Israelites after the Korah rebellion, where they think that was just not really fair. What was done to Korah. Right. Um, when they had all the, it's, the word of the Lord had commanded these things in the way they were. Aaron was clearly set apart before the eyes of all the people. He was set apart. He was put there. They anointed him. All these things were done done to him. They dressed him up in the robes. You saw this right before your eyes, and still there was the, well, we should be able to do that. I mean, even with Aaron, the confusion first with building the golden calves, and one of the all-time, this is, has to be one of the best lines in the Old Testament. When Aaron, mm-hmm. you know, he's confronted by Moses. And he said, well, you know, they brought me this gold. I just threw it in the fire and out came two golden calves. Oh, really? You didn't carve it? You didn't. <laughs> so here he was, the high priest, and he himself is doing the people's bidding, which is always a temptation of a pastor. That's, you know... That whole thing of wanting to do things that the people want you to do. I mean, how did we get so far down the road in the Missouri Synod even mm-hmm. that we've got all kinds of pastors refusing to say it's wrong to use grape juice in the sacrament? <laughs> right. And even some seminary professors have said that. Right. How did we get to the point where it's considered fine that people are living together and we don't make them repent? Mm-hmm. And you could go with one thing after another. It's because, like Aaron, there's that whole thing that suddenly the people come to you and it's so easy just to give in because, you know, it'll be fine. And, of course, the argument there was, well, you know, this Moses has disappeared. We're not sure. And so then these are the gods that brought you out. The substitution of one for another, and it just tends to get repeated again and again. So is, is this the same principle, the following the example of the neighbors that's going on in Second Samuel chapter 6 when Uzzah tries to study the ark? Right? They're carrying the ark not the way God commanded them to carry it, but upon the cart the way the Philistines did. Is this the same thing? It would be any time you depart from the Lord's words. Yeah. I don't, I'd have to think a little bit to say it's the exact same thing. But you're right, they're carrying it in a totally different way than they were supposed to. I mean, the rules are pretty clear mm-hmm. how the ark is to be borne up. Yeah. And they've sort of, well, I mean, the rules were clear. It wasn't really supposed to go off to battle to start with. Then mm-hmm. you have this great series of stories about the Philistine cities. And then, of course, the death of Uzzah. And people kind of think, well, you know how your members are. You t- teach that school story to them the first thing they said well that's not fair <laughs> right right he was just trying to study the ark well 
except there were specific rules about not touching the ark and because God is holy and you can only touch him how he wants to be touched. So mm-hmm. just as this is why you have the office of the ministry, he's appointed that he touches men through the office of the ministry and through the sacraments that are given there. And you can't just take it on yourself or go that way. You can't appoint yourself. You can't buy the office. Another Notice that's another one of those early encounters. Yeah, you have uh, the try to to buy the office of the ministry in the Book of Acts. I think these things are there because they really show the connection with the Old Testament too. There's a close connection with the idea that, oh, you know, we should all be able to do that. The Corinth situation, where it seems like everybody thought they had a right to preach in the, <laughs> I mean, it just sounds like that was the situation there. No, that's not the case. There needs to be a way God appoints for the people to receive his gifts. And it is through the mouth of a man who sometimes is a failure, like Aaron was. And yet Moses himself, we know, had that episode as well. And others where he was not exactly happy with the people and complained to God. You know, how am I supposed to bear this burden? What is it with all these people? <laughs> yeah, I and, just was. I just was thinking, you know, that when it, when the ark is returned, it, it just comes rolling in on a cart to them, and I was wondering if they just took up that example from the Philistines instead of going back to the way that God commanded. And so they're like, okay, so we're going to get the ark. How are we going to carry it? Well, this is how it came, and so they, just, yeah, they were just copying instead of going back to the the. The mandate in an institution. Yeah, and I do like that thought. Mm. I think it has a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So, because it's always, I mean, you can make the, the people who want to say fruit of vine is somehow not wine. <laughs> or we know better now. I always like the we know better now argument. You know, <laughs> no, it's, you know, when God establishes a pattern. It's the way he wants it to be. I mean, this is the same thing as creation is seven days. The pattern of the world is seven days. Mm-hmm. And there's a pattern to those seven days. And it, the pattern is tied in also to the importance of the third day and the resurrection. All mm-hmm. along, there are, are patterns in these things. If you look at the plagues, there's patterns that connect the, the plagues. There are patterns that you can argue connect the commandments. There's ways these are all, all brought together because God is a God of order. We are these people who in our sin are people of chaos. And so I'm sorry. It's like these places I've gone, maybe I shouldn't say this. I will anyway. Uh, where they have this sort of exchange of peace thing where they're handshaking all over the place. And mm-hmm. in some places I've seen them kissing. And it's just disruptive to the whole order. People going all over the place. It's You need some, the world is a place of disorder. Tonight I'm going to go to a, you know, one of these Beatles cover band things that's mm-hmm. free in the park here. It'll be a blast, but it will be chaotic. <laughs> yeah. There, there won't be patterns to it. It'll be the disorder of the world. Even some of the music is disorder. So it, it is a totally different way of doing things. When you come into church, you should just say, this is a different place. Mm -hmm. And you teach your children that, and 
No, it does not traumatize them. I survived that. My children had to survive that. I don't think they're traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they can be different if they got to test them out. I think it's other things that I did that traumatized them. Um, so you learn from the things around you, the conduct of things, whether you fold your hands, you know, in one way or another, at least you're folding your hands, whether you close your eyes during prayer or whether you mm. just little things that help you set apart. You don't do those things out in the world, yeah. but you do them in the assembly. If they have kneelers in church, you kneel. You don't kneel before people out on the streets. So you're doing something that's a different way, but it's a pattern that God approves of because his desire is that we do these things. The number of times that Moses falls on his face, even when he hears the rebellion, the Korah and his group come to him and they're wording that they have these rights, you know, that they should be able to do it. He falls on his face. Um, oh, I know what I was thinking of. Aaron even leads the rebellion with Miriam. You know, Miriam, mm -hmm. who cannot speak, and she, of course, gets punished more because the desire to be have a ministry is something a woman cannot have in the Old Testament either, pattern, and she then is the one who's cast outside for a while so that the judgment comes harshest upon her with the leprosy. And this is another reminder, all these orderly things matter. Mm -hmm. God establishes them, and they carry over. We do not, you know, slit bull's throats anymore and put blood here and there and everything because we do have the one who was slaughtered for us. And this is good. But we do have his blood that we drink. Mm -hmm. And we do have his body that we eat. And the water that came forth from his body upon the cross is what's sprinkled over us in holy baptism. Yeah. So these things are still to so be treated. I mean... There's nothing quite so bad as one of those Kunta Kinte baptisms. Have you ever seen those? Uh, no. Uh, no. So, well, I guess I should say like the Lion King, where you hold the kid up and they walk all over the <laughs> sanctuary with the kid. I'm always worried. I you know, was klutzy enough. I would have tripped, and the poor baby would have been. <laughs> yeah. Don't carry the kid all over the chancel, or all over the uh, nave, I should say. Just baptize the kid. Yeah. Make it about what the Lord wants done there, and that's it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I find it interesting, though, you know, within our circles, that is within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and and perhaps like most confessional and semi-liturgical church bodies, the, the push to go away from that is th that they're still following the sound pattern of words and actions that God gives, but they're you know they're they're updating them or you know making them relevant for the contemporary audience is there a sense in which this sound pattern of words and actions that comes not just from god and his his specific commands of what worship is to look like and how is it, how it's to be conducted, but that the, there's also a handing down of this from the Church of all ages. And is that is there a biblical example of that? I mean, I, I'm thinking here perhaps of like the Levitical singers that David institutes uh, as as the regent or the vice regent of Israel. Are are there other things 
that we can see as a pattern that that would uh, eliminate some of the or clarify some of the ongoing discussions around worship in our day? Well, once people start having their ears tickled, <laughs> you know, with the that idea of updating, you, know, you don't really update. It's one thing to um, you know make the most of you have organs or have uh, that kind of thing that you can add and use in a reverent way. Um, I wouldn't want to use the organ like Rick Wakeman does, even though I love Rick Wakeman. Um, you know, and yes, you just, church is a different setting. So you use the things of the world. Yes. Well, back to your whole thing about um, sort of taking the things, plundering Egypt, getting those things, using them in a holy context then is a different thing. Um, so, but you can't, you find talking, once people want to listen to the world and say, look, you know, people would be far more comfortable if we had a praise band in church. Then they're not even comfortable looking then, they don't want to even look at the words, which usually are just awful and shallow. They just want to feel, and see, this is part of my generation, that whole feelings thing. Everybody is always about feelings, but really, we brought it to the point that it's like feelings are supposed to go, you know, follow your heart. Everybody has their follow the heart t-shirt and everything. Mm -hmm. We in the church should be teaching our children, please don't follow your hearts. (laughs) (laughs) Because out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adultery. Let's instead maybe follow what the Lord says. And yes, it's, it's more, what it does is put a orderly pattern on us that, the thing about praise bands, etc., they tend to be very chaotic. Mm-hmm. You know, it adds to a chaos in the service, and people—the people then don't join in confessing. They don't know those songs. They—they they can't join in them because they're not really something that you sing that has depth of meaning. They're just something that's fluff. And so, but the argument was, well, you know, people would be more comfortable with that. Well, who? <laughs> if you want to go the ways of the world, yes. I mean, this is what leads to them then arguing that you need liturgical dancers and all the other things along the way. When really, those came out of pagan practices mm. and really are rooted in that. Let us instead do what you were talking about and say, well, we had these singers. You know, it's one thing to have a good choir and a choir that, performs reverent music, supports the hymnody of the church and the liturgy of the church. It's another thing to just have the choir be the choir because they're stars, you know, right. where you put the choir up front of the, and they become, you know, the performing group. And right. turns, notice the focus shifts from God and his word to the choir itself. People come to see the choir. Well, fine, do that somewhere else. Don't do that in church. Mm-hmm. You can have a good choir, put them you know, off to the side or in the back, someplace where the choir can support the congregation, give a message, etc. Support the idea of holy order in the congregation rather than this chaotic focus on self that prays bands and you know, putting a choir up front. That we borrowed all these things, after all, from our neighbors, Methodists and this kinds of 
those kinds of people, Baptists, and that's fine for them. They think a different way theologically. If you want to do that, go be a Baptist. Go be a Methodist. Leave Lutheranism behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything that you wanted to bring out from this Old Testament that we haven't covered? Um, well, there is that Numbers 11 where the fire comes out from the Lord and burns in the camp among the people mm-hmm. because, again, they were grumbling and complaining. And anytime they sort of want something other than what God offers. But that kind of is just another support to what we've talked about so far. So I think we've kind of covered the topic for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. you could always say more. but Yeah, you could. But okay. So all in all, the conduct of the office, not only of the pastor or the people placed in the office, the men placed in the office, in terms of their own holiness of life, but also in the carrying out of their duties should all keep in mind or or have it at its forefront the idea of holiness. And with holiness comes reverence, reverence toward God and to his commands and his word, Uh, and that that should be the—he should be a leader in that regard— an example, so that this flows from from the Lord through his servant to his people. Yes, he becomes this, I like the word pattern that mm-hmm. you used earlier, better than leader, because leader is one of those terms that it's kind of played with by people today. But sure. I know I shouldn't be dodging the term, but <laughs> it just pattern, I think, is a better way to look at it. And uh, even to realize my pattern, uh, the way I conduct the liturgy at the altar is different than if you were like coming to my Bible class. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to be reverent to a certain degree, but I'm much, it's a different setting. I'm not before the altar of God. I'm not ha- handling the holy things of God right there. I am speaking about his word, etc. but I'm going to be a different person there than inside that worshiping community before the altar of God. And that's an important thing that pastors need to reflect. It isn't the end of your personality. It is, however, that you control yourself before the altar of God because the most important thing at the altar is not you. It's Christ. Mm -hmm. And everything you do, your sermon, the conduct before the altar when you're serving the sacraments, when you baptize a child there, when you read the scriptures, it's all going to be something that should reflect the fact you're serving before a holy God who, in his mercy then, extends forgiveness of sins to us in the gifts he gives us. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about this pattern in conjunction with the pattern that we see where things go wrong, the people rebel, and the anger of the Lord is kindled. Are we also to follow that pattern? that our anger is kindled in, in kind of a holy anger? And, and how, how do we carry that out in the way that the Lord carries it out? What example are we to follow with regard to that? What pattern are we to follow? Well, centuries of the church history teaches us again and again there had to be this sort of righteous anger against those who are turning from 
practices that more faithfully confess the truth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always end well. <laughs> and it, let's face it, in our situation in the Missouri Synod, we've got this silly notion that came up that everybody can do it however they feel, which talk about learning from your neighbors. Um, for the initial period of our history, there was a hymn book. We did that. We stuck with the liturgy. We, you know, Those things were carried over. Then came the incorporation of some Methodist hymns. Then came, And you can just sort of follow certain things where we caved along the way. And now it's like, well, it's our congregation. We do it according to our ways. I mean, even if they have the bad practice of uh, serving grape juice or having women lectors or it, it doesn't matter. You say, well, we've done it. We get to do it this way. This is our freedom, mm-hmm. our freedom as Christians. Well, freedom has to be set aside for the good of all. I mean, that's the Corinthian thing, too. That's also Luther and the whole, uh, what am I trying to think? Freedom of freedom a Christian, Christian thing. Man. Yes. And it has to be for the good of the faith of these people. And by turning our backs on that, we have done some great evil, I fear, mm-hmm. to uh, a lot of people. I mean, who think they're Lutheran often, but aren't Lutheran at all. Um, they've never been exposed to just doing the liturgy. Yeah. Um, the fact that lots of our congregations still don't have the sacrament every week, even though it's there in our confessions. But again, you know, what happened? Well, you know, the neighbors didn't do it. And we fell into the neighbor approach. Neighbors like the Methodist and the Baptist and everybody, well, they don't even believe it's the Lord's body and blood. So why'd we go that way? Well, we went that way because we were more comfortable doing that. Yeah. And now we're more comfortable keeping that often. Mm-hmm. So it over and over again, we repeat the ways of the Old Testament. And we need to go back to, to learn the right ways too, to go yeah. back to my initial theme. Pay attention. Be pastors who teach these stories to the children in your congregation and to the adults too, of course. But children need to hear the stories to frame, give them a frame of reference to prepare them. These are not just sort of, you know, let's pick the happy stories. It's not a happy story that Aaron's sons get killed by God. (laughs) It's, you know, but it is something that tells us the importance of these things. Or even the Uzziah story, because Uzziah, Remember, decides to offer incense in a censer before the Lord in the temple. Now, here's a guy who was a good king in many ways. Uzziah does it, and in his wickedness, he is uh, then becomes a leper the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So, just at times, you don't need to exercise. Being David exercised his freedom and decided to number the people. Well, then his sin brought death on the other people in Israel. Yeah. It, we need to take a foundation of knowing the stories of the Old Testament. They matter. They're not just incidental. They aren't just something, well, that was then, this is now. No. Mm-hmm. There's too much time spent on those stories. There has to be a reason it's there. You know, unless you choose to be one who sort of says, I'll pick and choose what the Old Testament is. But you said you were a Lutheran. You said that the scriptures are all inspired by the Holy Spirit, they aren't just sort of things we can pick and choose. So it sounds like 
once again, you are advocating that we not just read the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, as though they are just a compilation of historical accounts. They are that. But more than that, they do set down a pattern for us to follow, something that we should look for patterns and see how that is applicable even today. Yes. Yeah. You've summed it up well. (laughs) I can't turn my back on that. I just think we've neglected. Again, if it's not historical, then there's no point to it. Yeah. But if it is historical, which I truly believe it is, then it's something that isn't just sort of a once in a long time ago thing. A long time ago in a strange land. No, Mm -hmm. it's still there. Yes. So... Well, thank you, Carl, for your time and insight. I always enjoy uh, talking to you, hearing you get giddy about uh, <laughs> these things from the Old Testament. Oh, I love it. it you know, I, I could spend all kinds of time. Well, I, I do, not as much as I wish I did, but I'm looking forward. This also got me into the Ezekiel stuff, so I'm getting ready for my uh, appearance at the St. Michaelmas thing in Detroit. So Okay. Well, good, good. We uh, look forward to seeing and hearing more about that. And I uh, am looking forward to some of the other things that we've got planned for this podcast with you in uh, looking at the sound pattern of words and teaching and examples that we have from the Old Testament. So thanks, Carl. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>